Hey y'all, Allison here. I wanted to quickly thank you for listening to our podcast. I know you're about to get a lot of valuable information from it, but I also wanted to hop in and share with you guys a free SOP, which stands for Standard Operating Procedure. We use this SOP every single day in our agency to authentically grow and engage our audiences on social. It is 1000% free and I'd love for you to have it and use it in your biz as well. So just go to umimarketing.com slash engage to go download. All right, cheers. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Umai Social Circle where we talk about CPG marketing tips to help business owners and marketers alike grow. I'm Allison, one of the co-founders of Umai Marketing. I'm Karen, the other co-founder. So today we're talking with Emily Hoyle. Emily is currently the brand director at Paps Brewing, but she has a very stacked history in the consumer goods space. So we're going to learn a lot today. She's worked with Oreo, Diet Coke, Axe, Smirnoff, Wheat Thins, and that's just to name a few. So we're really excited to talk to you. Thank you for being here, Emily. Yeah, thank you all. I'm excited to be here. So number one, how did you, what made you want to first start exploring the consumer goods space? I mean, I wish I had an answer where it was a super intelligent, thoughtful research decision, but truthfully, as a consumer and as I was, I went to UT for advertising in a minor in business, it felt like a natural, tangible step for me growing up in, I think all of us grow up in a really CPG focused world. It was a nice way for me to kind of like dip my toe into an industry of advertising and marketing with something I understood, which was consumer packaged goods, things I readily bought and consumed and interact with on a daily basis. So it's just kind of a natural decision versus one I think I kind of put too much thought in, to be honest. We always talk about how funny it is for when you're a consumer, how easy and nice it is to shop and on the shelf and pull beautiful things, but really the CPG industry is so complex Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's not as easy as we portray it to be. A hundred percent. And I think that is definitely something you learn when you kind of make that shift from being the consumer to being the person trying to attract and communicate with that consumer is the level of thought and research and decisions and strategy about you know, the packaging design, the name, the description, the placement on shelf, the height on shelf, the message, you know, all of those kind of touch points where as a consumer, you're just like, oh, this is what I want because I wanted it in that moment. I'm going to leave now. So it's an interesting shift. Yep. There's a lot there. So I saw that you interned with Sweet Leaf Tea and then you were at Proof Advertising. So that kind of merges well together. What, like, can you tell us more about those experiences and and what made you want to stick into that field? I did Sweet Leaf Ice Tea Company. I was a, a tea slinger, their, their brand ambassador. It was the summer before my senior year of college. And then I worked at Proof. Now, this was so far back in the day. They were still called Kohler. So this is well before they did their whole merger. So I worked there through my, my senior year in college. And again, you know, that was the benefit of a really strong university with a lot of resources and and spaces that I could look into potential jobs. And of course, Sweet Leaf being local as well as Kohler Down Proof. So I really enjoyed working at Sweet Leaf because it was kind of, you know, you had to take the initiative. There was, it was clearly like, basically you need to go out there and need to be a brand ambassador and you need to find ways and places and spaces in Austin to get the brand out there but then they kind of left us to our own devices. 
So it was really upon myself and the other interns to get creative and figure out where and how we could show up. So I was doing a lot of marketing blitzes, setting up an activation at like Blues on the Green. You know, I learned how to like a, to drive a sprinter van and like take pallets and like lock them in, which I never would have thought that's something I would I would actually have as a skill set. So that was all really just about taking the initiative since it was such a small company at that time. It was really growing. And then for Kohler, that was just an exercise in learning to find my voice and ask for projects, ask for things I could take on and not be afraid to, to speak up and speak to people. I think what I learned from it as well was to always talk to people outside of perhaps your space or your expertise or where you want to go because you never know what you could potentially learn. So I found myself talking to a lot of the people in the print studio or talking in the, the media studio versus perhaps just like the account department. And it really just gave me a lot of insights into the nuance and the inner workings of advertising in general that I may never touch in my career, but really helped me understand the overall process just to be quite frankly better at my eventual job. That is incredible that at Sweetleaf you had that much creative freedom to make pretty much create marketing activations. That's wild that they had their interns Yeah, they gave a lot of trust into you guys. I mean, there was, of course, there was obviously structure and certain things we had to do. But if you think about this is, God, when was that? I'm like dating myself. That was 09. So that was 2009. In terms of you think about the size of Sweet Leaf at that moment, that was before they were bought by... I think it was Nestle or I can't quite remember. So it was a lot more of, hey, we're all in this because we love this brand. It, it totally makes sense in the world. You guys are young, you know how to connect to the, the community. These are the kind of rubrics and metrics you need to do, you know, get out there and do it. Here's a couple of events that we know we wanna be at. But, but then it was kind of like a, you know, I'll never forget one of the other interns literally said like our our boss kind of came in and he's like oh working hard he goes working hard or hardly working and like the rest of us interns looked down we're like don't ever say that (laughs) ever again needless to say he didn't do well um there but yeah it was it was just a testament to like taking the initiative and figuring out what you can do and it was honestly a blast like i'm still good friends with one of the other interns that i met he went to um, a completely different university so it's just a great way to meet people as well I mean, Clayton Christopher always coming in hot with those well, brands. Yeah. I think at that time, because I worked the ACL festival, which I would say the best way to go to ACL is to like work for a little bit, get paid, and then just get off and go watch the, the music. Don't ever pay for a ticket. But he was there. And I think at the time, kind of offhand, we mentioned that at this point, I think they were starting to potentially sell the company or at least get the, the buy-in from, like, I want to say it's Nestle or Nestle. And was mentioning, oh, I think I'm gonna go make a vodka, like a spike vodka. And I remember being like, that's wild, that's stupid. Why would you ever do that? Tito's is huge. You guys already use them as a partner, but good luck. And then here we are, you know, Deep Eddie's how large. So it's just, I think it was a good lesson on listen, don't always expect that it's a, you know, you should always assume the world is as it is and it will never change and a wild idea couldn't work. So it was a really good lesson for me to not just immediately say no or shut things down or not believe in it, but to keep an open mind and, and to really look at trends that might be emerging. So it was an interesting moment. I love that advice because as young, confident marketers and business owners, we're like, we know what we like. We know what you like. We know what we're, we know what we're doing. 
and to just be yeah. open to, you know, the possibilities is pretty strong. Yeah. And I yeah. think also don't assume it's just going to be a success from the start. Like obviously I'm in the bev out category within CPG and seltzer. I would say if we were talking maybe three years ago, we would all be laughing. Like what is a hard seltzer? I don't drink that. I drink craft or I drink beer. And then here we are. And it's just gobbling consumption and like absolutely decimating like the light beer market share industry. And I think it's a really good moment of you can have a great idea, but it might take three to five to eight years to really take off, but to not kind of, you know, Oh, first year it wasn't a success. Two years got to like innovate unless it's drastically not making any revenue. You can also look at Nick ultra in terms of that same space. So I think it's important to actually trust in an insight, trust in a trend. Um, as long as you're set up in a smart way to kind of figure out like, what is it three to five years to, profitability or, or breaking even to kind of have that plan. It's not kind of instant success or instant gratification because we've kind of been trained to always have that mm -hmm. you know, reaction in those spaces. So can we talk about hard seltzer and how that's played a role, that huge trend, how it's played a role in your current position with PAPS? So much I can speak to as it relates <laughs> to perhaps some of the things we have going on um, on our side, but I think it's a really it's, it's, I would consider it a case study to looking at a hyper traditional uh, industry aggressively innovating and where certain brands, I think, stuck their heels in was like, we're not going to go that, that path is a ridiculous fad, it'll go away. And I think perhaps miss the boat in certain spaces. So there's, you know, there's Wi-Fi and truly complete new innovators. There's a lot of craft brands that are starting to go there. And you've got this second wave of fast followers of the beer brands finally acknowledging that, hey, maybe this is a space where consumers are going. So I think it's a really interesting case study on how long do you wait until you accept or embrace a trend? And I think arguably the beer business was very slow to embrace it and is now having to play catch up. And I think lost a lot of opportunity with consumers. I don't think it's all you know, doom and gloom, but it, it's, it's really important to listen, not only to trends, but to actually to consumers and, and understand what they actually want and need and create that. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I feel like it's more difficult for the more, um, the larger brands that are, have all these structures already in place to pivot. You know, it's like, it's really great for new emerging brands to just get in there. And <laughs> yeah. But when you're at the level that you are, I mean, is there a certain point where you say, okay, this trend is proven, we need to move forward with it. And how do you find that information? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It really depends on like what type of company you're at. So when I was on the advertising side, when I was working with Diageo, you know, we were talking about the seltzer space probably like five years ago, maybe even six. So typically in bigger corporations, they have entire, you know, work streams and pipelines and verticals that are just innovation led people. We're looking at trends, investigating all this, and you have your marketers and you have your sales guys. So if your company and corporate strategy is like large enough, you have the people whose entire job is to do that and they'll bring it to the marketing side. I'm not at a company that that's large, that's as large as that, which I actually kind of like because I'm very much involved in that innovation pipeline as well. And so really it's just a, an education in, you know, what resources do you have on hand to review trends? How are you looking beyond your current industry? 
to kind of find that information? Who are you partnering with perhaps in that, those spaces and places to kind of be your tastemakers out in the world? Do you really just build a network of information versus assuming you have all the answers? And that's how we really start to investigate like two to three years down the line on trends. But I'll be honest, Pabst Brewing, you know, obviously it's PBR, I work on Lone Star, I work on um, Pearl, and I also just recently, as of this week, I'm taking on a couple more brands across um, the states, but we were playing catch up. We, I absolutely were, were a company that was in the old guard of really not embracing change. We've had a complete leadership revival over the last two to three years with a lot of innovative thinkers um, that are really leading those trends, like for example, PBR just launched probably this past year, hard coffee, which if you had asked me two years ago that there was going to be a spiked coffee beverage, again, I'd be like, that's crazy. But instead of saying that's crazy, I would never do that. I'm like, that's crazy. Why are they thinking about that? What are they seeing? Like what's happening? And if that's happening, what else is happening? Like the spiked kombuchas or what's the space as we kind of hopefully decriminalize a lot of perhaps some of these other elements, like what, what's going to lead in that kind of beverage space that could be pretty interesting. I really love how you frame that. So instead of saying that's crazy, say that's crazy. Why are they thinking about that? And yeah, and going out and looking into it instead of just leaving it. So you said something earlier that I really liked about when you're interning, you're saying you went into proof and you got to learn about all facets and understand everything that goes into the whole, the in final product. And like looking at your resume and what all you've done, it seems like that that is something that you kind of live by. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's actually a great question and a smart research on my, my background. Yes. So I started, I actually was a, a PR um, major for exactly one semester and was like, absolutely. <laughs> and I switched out of that into advertising and, and did business, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And it felt like a massive weight. And maybe it's cause I'm a Libra and apparently we've got scales and we like measure everything, but I, I didn't feel comfortable making a massive decision about like, what's going to be my career or my job without like, any type of trial runs or information. So I intentionally chose a different type of internship every summer in a different field of say advertising or marketing in general, to have a bit of a better understanding of what it would be like out in the real world. So then I felt more confident to go into account management when I took that first job um, working on the, the Oreo and Elite Fins account, because I felt like, okay, I understand I don't necessarily want to do media, but I understand it a bit more than probably other people who haven't touched it. I eventually want to do marketing, but I think I need to go the advertising route because it's such like a, like, it's, you know, hyperdrive um, jump in your career in the start. So, you know, I did that through college and then I did that in advertising as well. I think if you look at the types of brands I touch, you know, aside from just the CPG, I've worked in technology, you know, with, with Google, I've, I've, with, through that, I was able to work with Coca-Cola, Beyond Diet Coke, Avis, and Volvo, and a couple other brands in those spaces and places. So it really just allowed me to understand what industries, while in advertising, right? Because you can kind of jump around naturally. That's the, in advertising, you can be at a place for a year or less than a year, and you can jump, and it's not a problem. It's not a hit to your resume as long as it doesn't stack up. But I felt that advertising could give me a way to essentially shop around 
until I found an industry that I really liked. Mm -hmm. And I could then take the step to go onto the marketing side, the quote client side and make that my like next long-term career. Um, and hopefully do this all while getting paid. Right. So I'm still being able to kind of explore that, um, but be able to like actually have a living. Right. So for someone who's looking to get into the CPG space, like what's your biggest piece of advice for them? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's one clear path to it, which I'm sure everyone's like, Oh, that's helpful. Like there's not one hard and fast rule. I think the way that I approached it is absolutely a path. Like if you're kind of torn between a couple different things, don't feel like one decision is your final decision. Take it as a step into the next one. You never know what it's going to lead to. So that's one route. There's another route is if you're passionate about something, you know, start reaching out to people you know, in that industry or with that knowledge, you'd be shocked how many people will actually respond to like a cold LinkedIn message. More often than not, they won't, but you know what? Sometimes they will and have a conversation in a chat. So you could easily start to reach out to someone within those industries and you can start small and start to build your way through. Like I have a lot of people I work with now who are career um, beer people and they started literally like in as a truck driver taking the beer from the truck into the the bar and now they're like the svp of sales of like our top market so there's so many different ways you can approach it and you shouldn't feel like there's one route i think you just have to go in eager inquisitive and like have a really really strong work ethic because that's what people recognize and that's the type of talent that they invest in and that'll either get you to jump to another industry another job because they see your talent or you know promotion from within um, if you kind of stick with one industry yeah totally agree with the reaching out i mean just it's only happened a few times i used to do that but it's only happened yeah, yeah. a few times vice versa and just the like passion and eagerness and like boldness is it's like inspiring to see and it just kind of gives yeah. you a whole another like love for what you what you do and what you like to do so yeah and i'd also say like it might sound and maybe it doesn't who knows well, I'll, I'll listen to this afterwards that maybe perhaps i have all the answers or I've, I've figured it out it's absolutely not true i think that was the biggest eye-opener for me is when especially when i started to get into the advertising world which is just an insane amount of extremely talented people which can be very intimidating and the same can be true when you go into a very hyper specific industry it feels like everybody's the expert except for you and what i realized is i assumed everyone was extremely talented or extremely knowledgeable and maybe had some innate you know talent or access to insights or information i would never have access to and i realized pretty quickly once i got into those worlds that that just wasn't true they just were hard workers and more often than not, they didn't know the answer, but they trusted their own opinion and their own voice. So my, for better or worse, I think personal philosophy has just been like, fake it till you make it. Like mm -hmm. there's going to be certain things, you know, certain things you don't, but that's true of everyone, which is the person with a C level in their title or someone who has assistant at the front there. That's really kind of the a lowest common denominator. So that's helped me be able to be inquisitive, to, to have ambition, to get after stuff with that acknowledgement that we're all still learning and not everybody actually knows what's going on. So fake it till you make it. I love that motto. And I know Karen and I talk about like imposter syndrome a lot oh, yeah. and it can really weigh you down if you just continue. I think if you just are continuing to learn and it, it's, you're right there on the same path as most others. So it's, it's tough to like imposter syndrome 
is very real. And I'll be honest, I feel like every time I'm given a promotion or I get a job or I do well or something like that, I have this moment of like self-doubt, even in praise, like, did I really do that well? Or like, I messed up in this one point and I'll fixate on that. And it really takes away like the personal win in the moment to actually celebrate like, hey, actually like really worked my ass off. I'm actually going to celebrate that even if I messed up in this one spot. But it's a challenge. It's an active exercise I have to do to basically be my own personal, you know, cheerleader or life coach in those moments. And to not just maybe like suppress it and try and ignore the imposter syndrome, embrace it, take a minute to, to understand okay, why do I feel that about myself? Why am I, you know, putting myself down? Here's all the things I just heard, accept it and kind of move on. But it's, it's absolutely an active exercise that I still have to do, you know, even this far in my career. That's so wild to hear where you are and you still struggle with that. I mean, that's really inspiring. I mean, I feel like a lot of people are going to hear that and appreciate it. So we all feel that way. I mean, I feel like if you don't feel that way at some point in your life, it's like, I mean, what do you do? Do you have any, do you have like a mantra? You're like, I'm the shit. Do you you say that to yourself? That's so funny. (laughs) You know, when I'm, when you start to be at a place for long enough, I think there is some value in in sticking it out, even if it might be like a little overwhelming or a lot to take on at the beginning. And I would say my transition from advertising into marketing and hyper-specific into beer was a massive learning curve because it came with a lot of commercialization and understanding like finances and sales operations, which was well far beyond what I was traditionally used to. But I got to a point where I realized, you know, just put in the work, ask the questions, start to inform myself, continue to get better. And then once I got into a position where I felt a bit more comfortable, when I started to self-doubt, like I've, I just, there's this whole process where we start to present, it's called our, our, the PAPS path, rebuild an entire brand plan from like macro insights into like hyper-specific, like tactical sprints you're gonna do with your specific brand. And it's a beast. And I had to present that to the entire marketing leadership team and then the sales leadership team and then the exec team, literally people who own the business, right? The owner. And that's like, I was like psyching myself out a little because I was like, oh my gosh, right? And it's all through Zoom. And then I had a minute and I asked myself, like I have, you know, classic conversation yourself, do you believe in your plan? And I said, absolutely. Does anyone else on this call know more about this plan than you? I was like, absolutely not. Do you feel confident with it, even if they disagree? And I was like, absolutely. So I was like, so even if they don't agree entirely with it, or there's certain things they want to push on, I had confidence in my opinion, in my perspective that I was bringing, that I, I believed in myself and that because I'd done the work. And I think that's really what it was, is if you put in the work and you have faith and confidence in yourself, even if someone's going to disagree or have a different opinion, they see that confidence, they see your perspective and they respect that. And it's a much better path towards like actual meaningful change or, or a conversation. But when people can like sense that maybe you don't maybe believe in that, or you're trying to tell them the answer they want, they really start to like get at you, especially at certain levels. So as long as you have that confidence and that faith and belief in yourself, even if you have to fake it until you make it a little, it, it absolutely can transform a, a presentation and a conversation you have with some, regardless of, of their opinions. This is great. And I'm just going to keep asking questions about like feelings yeah, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I, I feel like personally, I struggle with saying something confidently without, without being too like severe and saying it. Mm. And how do you take on that? 
Yeah, like soften the blow. You know, number one, and I think I learned this from truthfully like the advertising side, right? So I was in client services left, I was in the account service department. You have to read a room. You have to understand, all right, how does every single person operate? What's their triggers? What's their motivators? So that way, if you really start to kind of honestly analyze the people around you, if it's your own team, how do you motivate without, you know, demoralizing? If it's your client, how do you stand firm without causing an unnecessary fight or, or pissing them off? You know, how do you manage up with your boss if they're a terrible manager or how do you communicate these, these pieces? So I don't think it's about self-censoring. Like shouldn't have to feel like you have, you always have to say something polite. And I would argue that there's an assumption that women in business or women in the world have to be, you know, demure or um, pleasant or always with a soft and light touch. Unfortunately, I think that's been ingrained in us. Like I still have to fight that. I think it's about reading the situation, understanding how a person reacts to communication and then tailor your message in that way. For example, guy who runs is our um, general manager at our company is the most blunt, straightforward person I've probably ever met. So I don't sugarcoat anything. I just straight give a direct answer back. And it's like a little like game of, of back and forth and then it's done. I have other people I work with, if I were to do that, they would be so shut down that the communication would go nowhere. So I do a like, you know, a long walk for a ham sandwich. So I do a roundabout conversation to then finally get to the point. So they feel soft and buttered up enough that we can have, you know, the debate. And then there's other ways where someone just needs to feel like they said something intelligently. So you have to be like, hey, that's a really good question. And that's a really good point. However, this is why we thought this way, but I appreciate you kind of calling that out. And then suddenly they're like, okay, they're on board. So I don't think it's about one way or the other. It's just read the situation and kind of how can you be most persuasive and change your skill set to ultimately get what you want. Beautiful. Cool. Well, going back into your experience. So the yeah. alcohol industry, advertising especially, it's so complex. There's yeah. so many hoops you have to jump through. Can you give us like a couple obstacles that you face and how you guys overcome them? Advertising, or excuse me, like the alcohol, alcohol advertising can be really, really tricky. I call it a sandbox. It's called the creative sandbox, right? Like the biggest thing is there's just certain things, especially in highly regulated industries that you just cannot get around. So don't bother trying to fight against you know, hard rules or breaking those, find ways to bend them or work within it. So for advertising in alcohol, for example, and I was actually going to pull up a couple ones. I think I wrote them down. Oh yeah. You can never, you guys, it's a fun exercise. Once you know this, you can never actually show consumption in BevAlk. If you watch your ads, you'll never see someone actually drinking the beverage that they have in hand. So next time you've got anything BevAlk, like watch the ad and you'll notice like no one's drinking it. You also can't show overconsumption, meaning they can't have multiple beverage multiple times and show a lot of time spent because we, it's not, you know, considered okay. And granted, some of this is regulated by like the actual, you know, advertisers or a certain network. And some is like self-regulated, like Diageo has a marketing code and they're very strict on what they allow, what they don't, because they just basically don't want to get sued. So like, I get it. You can't show cause effect. Like I start drinking this and suddenly I'm sexier, I'm wealthier, I'm more popular or sexual success. 
at all. Like you'll notice again, you watch them, that'll never happen. And then again, in, T in Texas, TVC laws are so strict. Like we, if you walk into a store, you'll notice in Texas that if there's like an offer across merchandising opportunity, like buy this beer and some chips, the offer will always be related with the non-alcohol beverage because you cannot discount beer. You can't be like, if you buy this, you get a dollar off. There's no like rebates or, re or refunds. So it's a, it's a very, very small world you can work in. But if everyone's playing by the same rules, right? Like any, like name a sport, if you're all following the same rules, there's still gonna be a winner. So just understanding kind of like the, the parameters and then how you can get around it can be really interesting, which is why you need like a really unique selling proposition or you need a really interesting way to, to differentiate that perhaps has nothing to do with the actual product itself, right? The actual consumption or the result from it. But maybe it's more about the feeling of, of you know, togetherness or socializing or moments shared together, i.e. if you think about how Coca-Cola does it. Like there's other ways that you can kind of play into it. You just have to kind of pivot and perhaps go towards a feeling and emotion and insight versus, hey, I gotta show, you know, how to exactly use a product. So it can be fun. It can also just be like, really crappy when you're saying can't do this can't do this you kill like all these creative <laughs> ideas like can't do it can't do it can't do it so yeah i guess you just have to come to the table with a whole lot of ideas every single time yep <laughs> every single time and it gets easier as you keep going you're like avoid this do this instead so what's your favorite do you have a favorite campaign about all time alcohol or oh yeah i mean i saw that i saw that question i was like oh no like what do i say <laughs> i i feel like i always like to see what's coming out and what's new and try and, and you know embrace it and there's a lot of easiest way to understand like really good campaigns is there's can or i know a lot of people say con but you know there's the film festival there's also the advertising side of it so there's constantly like award shows that recognize really innovative awesome work you know year after year and they always list the links and they always list the examples so it's just a really good way like if someone's going into an interview and they don't just want to say like coca-cola or nike to look through all those lists and maybe find the one kind of offbeat interesting one. And that will actually like impress the person because most likely they know of it or they know the person who made it. Um, but for me, I think hands down kind of looking at the broad space of advertising, this is an old one back from like the fifties or sixties. It's Avis, We Try Harder. Are you guys familiar with that campaign at all? That sounds familiar. So the reason I like it is just actually the story behind it. And that's the fact that Avis at the time was number two to Hertz. And rather than trying to maybe have the, the me too um, inspiration or kind of feeling like little brother and having to prove themselves, like I would argue like the Pepsi response to Coca-Cola mm -hmm. always kind of feels like the sub brand and no offense to anyone who prefers Pepsi. Um, but they embraced it. And they said, hey, we're, they're like, we're number two, which means we try harder for you, consumer, because we're not number one. We know we need to earn your business. And these are all the ways we do that. And we're going to continue to strive to work hard for you because we're number two, because we're constantly, you know, going to, to try and be better. And it was absolutely transformational for their business. They went from losing millions of dollars a year to actually profitability. But the reason I like it the most is that this is a time when the industry was extremely male dominated and, and very white, and I'd argue it's too white now still, but it was actually done and led by a female copywriter, Paula Green, who I had the fortune of working with when I worked on the Google Rebrief project. 
And I, I believe she's actually the inspiration behind Peggy from Mad Men. And she's the one who actually wrote the actual copy, the, the copywork and, and everything behind it. So not only was it an amazing way to take quote unquote a problem and turn it into your, your biggest point of pride or, or reason to believe in the company, but the fact that it came from a woman in an extremely male dominated space, it's just kind of inspiration for me, especially, you know, being in a beer industry that's extremely male dominated. So I'd say that's kind of my, my always like timeless favorite. I love that story behind it. I would have never known that. So who else or where else should we be grabbing inspiration? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to say, hey, where do you grab inspiration from like a high level? I think it's more of what I ask people, like, what are you interested in? in? Not like industry response, but like in general in life, where do you find yourself like following on Instagram or like like reading articles and clicking on? then those are the spaces and places that perhaps you start to take more time and attention to. Like, I really like design work. Like I found that I really liked um, product development and product design when I was on the advertising side. Like that was my favorite part of like every project, which was the concept behind the actual can or the bottle and like what it looked like. So for me, I started following, you know, various different people on Instagram and different like design blogs or just asking people in that industry, like, who should I follow? What should I do? And I actually haven't done that for years and just picked it back up now because I've got a bit of extra time on my hands due to COVID. I think it's more about find what you're interested in. Start to, I think the beauty of social media, like especially on Instagram, if you follow, they'll recommend another follow and you just fall down the rabbit hole and then you can call and then you'll start to see and start to be able to like understand and speak the language and kind of follow those trends. So I don't think I necessarily have like, you got to follow this, you got to follow that because it all depends on your own interests. I think there's just a really easy way to find a path to where you're no longer having to search for it and the information kind of comes to you. And Google alerts, tell you what, that always helps. That's an easy um, little oh, note. Yeah. I had that a lot when I was, I was looking for a job, I'd follow certain like founders. So if they had like a TED talk, or something like that. So if I ever needed to perhaps reach out to someone on LinkedIn, I would search their name and Google alert, see if I could find uh, an event or something they, they went to. And I'm like, hey, like I saw your, or I watched XYZ thing. I thought this was interesting. Do you have time? Versus, hi, I was wondering if I could talk to you about the industry in general. Because then it was like a bit of flattery, something specific, like I found you, I listened to you. I, I think something you said was industry in, interesting can we have a conversation? I'd love to learn more. And that tended to like work a little better. That's so cool. I mean, we set up Google alerts for the clients that we work for. So we're on top of what's going on in those fields, but I've never set them up personally for myself. Yeah. To like yeah. slide into the DMs. Yeah. I love that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Definitely it it gonna works. Do that. Yeah. Especially if you got, I would say, especially in Austin, it's some, it's big, but it's small. Like there's certain spaces so you can follow certain people that are probably pretty high up in mm -hmm. certain industries. And more often than not, you'll probably know through like three people, someone who knows them or reference it or how best to connect with them. So you'd be surprised when you start to, to ask around, which is why I think mentorship and like open communication and connection with people is super important. And then it's really kind of outside of maybe our comfort zone and the people we know, just to make sure like everybody kind of has a fair shot um, to that type of access. Very cool. Okay, so we kind of want to talk about about people who want to get to where you are. So yeah. did we ask you already what the biggest piece of advice you could give someone? 
trying to enter the space. Did I say, was that when I said a fake it till you make it? Because I think that's Yeah, I, as I was reading that, okay, we'll, we'll cancel that. Check. <laughs> um, but, oh, that's, okay, what can smaller brands take away from the bigger brands that you're currently working with or have worked with in the past? It's a really good question. I think it's always important to look at a company's origins. If, cause if they're a big brand, they had to start small somewhere. I think HEV is a masterclass on starting small, going big, but not losing um, the ability to innovate and be, you know, very much on top of all trends and, and being a leader in a lot of spaces. So I'd say that's just like bar none, a really, really good, I call it local example of a company not losing its connection to its roots, but embracing an ability to expand smartly, right? Like you don't, there's a reason they're not in every place in Texas because I don't think they'd be able to do it as well as they would want and they'd have to compromise a lot of their principles to get there. And again, yes, they are one of our partners, but this is more my perspective on them as like a consumer and then also as a, as a marketer. So I would definitely take like, understand where they came from and see the path of where they got if you really admire them and kind of use that perhaps as your guiding principles if you do want to expand to that size. Now on the flip side though, something that I think small companies, businesses, brands have that larger brands will never have is this ability to connect on a one-to-one -one level in a way that essentially big brands essentially sacrifice on the altar of scale, of profitability, of whatever they truly care about. Um, it, it leads bigger companies to, okay, I have to appeal to everyone. So then I will maybe not say anything. And I certainly won't say anything controversial or specific or bespoke because it's going to piss off XYZ person. And I can't do that because they're X percent of my, you know, consumer market. So I'm going to go this way. I think Diet Coke, when I used to work on that, was a really good example of they wanted to embrace the Gen Y uh, consumer. I think they still call it Gen Y at that point, but they had their baby boomer generation. And they were torn between, do we appeal to our loyalists or do we recruit? And because they really couldn't make a smart decision on it, the brand kind of continued to flounder. And specifically from the advertising communication pieces, it was never cohesive or clear or had a strong point of view. And I think it just kind of fell flat. And I'm, and I'm saying that as someone who actually like worked on the campaigns, it still felt like things fell flat. So as a small business, leaning into being local, being trusted, being authentic, having a true story, something that people can resonate with, I think is super, super important and something not to lose along the way, because I ultimately, I think that's what can differentiate. Like I think a lot about like local small businesses, especially in these times, people want to, you know, support them. Like my favorite coffee shop, Revival just shut down, which was terrible. And it was so sad to see a, a local business go and I'm so worried it's just going to be replaced by like, you know, a high rise or like a, a corporate Starbucks, who knows? So I think don't underestimate the, the, the value and the power of being local, of being bespoke, quote unquote, being special, because sometimes that's actually what a consumer is looking for, that ultimately they lack that emotional connection or that loyalty to the mass brands because those mass brands don't care about them in the same way. Yeah, that is something that we really, really drive on for all the brands that we work with is the power of community and mm -hmm. really building it and focusing in on how you can make their lives better from day to day outside of the products you offer. So, yeah, absolutely. Because then if they're supporting you and they're lifting you up, like that's advocacy, that's advertising dollars. Like that's the way you compete with having like 
you know, a thousand dollars to advertise your product is you create your brand loyalist or your consumer into your advocate. That's an amazing place to start with. And that hopefully, you know, leads to long-term growth and success. Yeah. So like how, can you give an example of how Pabst does that? Like how Pabst really one of the brands within the umbrella, how they build community well? I'll start, I'll probably just talk about Lone Star since that's kind of the brand I, I work with most, the one I, I um, lead most. You know, Lone Star has been around since the 1800s, which is kind of wild when you think about that. And it's, so it's been around for a lot, for a long time, and it hasn't necessarily changed, which is a good thing, right? But it doesn't, it makes it a little bit harder to kind of connect if you're all, if you're always kind of stuck in the past. So when I joined maybe a year and a half ago, my challenge and the challenge given to me and what I wanted to embrace is how do you take a beloved, but probably outdated or retro brand and make it relevant to today's Texans. Who are today's Texans? What do we value? What do we stand for? How does this connect to Lone Star? How does Lone Star connect in a way that other brands can't because we've been around for so long, we intrinsically are Texan. So that was like a big kind of, we call it like our, our ship and by degrees we're turning, right? And so we're like, okay, we've done the 180 in terms of hopefully shifting away from the old perception of Lone Star, but how do we embrace you know, what it means to be Texan today on an iconic Texan brand. And for us, that was about looking outside ourselves and our core consumer in terms of what does the consumer look like in Texas today? What do they want? What do they like? What do they identify with? So that's why we just came out with our Mexican style lager, Rio Jade, which if you haven't tried it, you should. It's delicious. But not in a way that was like, we're just going to me to this and like, be a local version of, you know, a, a dose or a Modelo or Corona. What we did is like, what is the most Texan way we can create a Mexican style lager because we're intrinsically connected and linked in that way. So we partnered with a local artist from San Antonio, Cruz Ortiz, to help us actually develop the concept behind the beer, the design, the artwork. Um, we partnered on, on creating the name, you know, I'm thinking of it internally, but we wanted to make sure like, how do we actually create an inherently Texan beer, which is obviously inherently has Hispanic culture and heritage and, and honors that, so that it felt part of the community. So when it came out, it wasn't, hey, we saw the trend, so we me too'd it. It's like, hey guys, like we created this beer for Texans, for everybody, because we want to celebrate that. And I think that's why it's, it's done well. And I think that's the way you can honor the community and get people to buy in and be an advocate for you because you're listening to them you're representing them, you're hopefully, you're doing it in an honest way versus perhaps forcing it or, or you know, outdated or kind of putting your head in the sand. So I'd say that's a, a, a good example from at least what we've done recently. Is amazing. Yeah, that is I, so tight. I love all the questions you ask yourself and mm -hmm. I, I'm sure that's such a big part of your role. So I did want to ask for someone who wants to be a brand director, like you are, what, like, what does your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, it's funny. I would say that's probably the hardest question to answer. And it's always been the hardest question to answer in my career, especially in advertising and even in, in the marketing side now. And it's probably why I love it is because it's never the same every day. It really depends on what time of year we're in, in terms of say planning into executing into like, you know, on shelf. 
or in the world, you know, who am I speaking to, you know, who's my audience and what am I focusing on? So, you know, a classic day could start with me doing really deep research on my industry. So I'm on Nielsen. I'm looking at our reports on our sales. I'm, um, I'm working with my commercial strategy team with numerator, which pulls information on shoppers. I'm reading a bunch of articles within my industry. I'm reading articles outside of my industry. I'm basically acting like a sponge, like straight up college style, right? When you're trying to just learn everything to be able to write that paper that's due, you know, way too soon. So just really kind of taking it all in. So there's that part of my job that's constantly happening, which is constant education and investigation. Then there is actual execution and strategy and planning. So taking all the information, understanding what we're trying to accomplish as a company, and I'm writing brand plans, right? So a brand plan would be, like I mentioned, all this high-level data around like the true, what we call our true market understanding, and then actually, you know, what's, what is our brand purpose? What do we stand for? So what's happening out in the world, kind of just agnostic of a brand or anything, what do I or my brand stand for in this moment that's non-changing and is reflective of what we stand for? Bringing those two together, where is there things that mesh? Where are there things that don't? What do I need to then solve in my phase three of executing with excellence to actually be able to take advantage of those insights that match with my brand and where I want to go? And so kind of that's, the, that's what I'm doing all the time. And then on that third phase of like executing with excellence, that's me constantly working with my partners internally, externally, right? So it's constantly working with the people I manage, my boss to get things moving, working, you know, across departments. I'm constantly speaking with my sales team. I think there's a um, negative trend where you silo and it's really difficult in COVID right now because everyone's isolated, but marketing does one thing, sales does something else, you know, you know, whoever else kind of buckets you have. And from my advertising background, you had to work as a team where you were totally screwed. So I work really, really hand in hand daily with my sales team um, to make sure that, you know, what they need that I'm able to provide and like vice versa. And then the third bucket I'm constantly doing is I'm constantly working with our um, retailers, our wholesalers and our retailers. So, so because of literally prohibition and like the laws, like that's how old this is. There's a three-tiered system in alcohol and like beer. So you've got your supplier, PAPS, you've got your wholesaler. So someone who's essentially the middleman, like for example, Capital Right is ours in um, Austin, Capital Right Distributing. And then you have your retailer, like an HEB, a Kroger, a Circle K. And all three have to work together, quote unquote, harmoniously for a consumer to be able to purchase that beer. So I am literally switching hats all the time, which I like because I can, I tend to get a little bored from doing one thing for too long. So I'm constantly in investigative, informative mode into planning, strategy, organizing, into executing, convincing, um, you know, tracking in market and kind of like everything that falls, you know, below that, but it's, I like it. And hopefully people who are listening to the podcast enjoy trying multiple things and, and build in, you know, understanding a puzzle and like putting it all together. That's what I love to do and like problem solve and find creative solutions. That's kind of what I do all day long, truthfully. Yeah. That's awesome. Intense problem solving. Yeah. I, I think that people, smaller brands sometimes do forget about the importance of really merging marketing and sales together when it comes to building campaigns and yeah 
growing the business. And I think that's a really great reminder to both of those teams to come together more often, like have more weekly calls, have or just do whatever you can to communicate better together. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, that's a great point. And I think it's a, it's a good shot. And I, and I love that you guys come with such a, a strong perspective from a small business minded space. I've worked at small agencies, but I haven't necessarily worked on small brands and or companies. So it's nice to, to get y'all's perspective on that. I think another thing in terms of what I've learned, like I mentioned, fake it till you make it. But for me, it's always been about teamwork. And to steal a quote from my cousin, who's a teacher in California, he's always like, teamwork makes the dream work. I'm like, all right, Paul. But the truth is, it's absolutely valid. And I have never gotten somewhere in my career because I did it on my own, or I burned every bridge I could, or I only thought about myself. You can be generous with your time. You can be a team player. You can, you know, let other people shine by supporting them. You don't have to put yourself in the, on the back burner, but if you build a really strong team, not just like colleagues in your own space, but just that whole network of trust and support, you'll be surprised and almost shocked sometimes of how much that helps things succeed. So to your point, it's not about like, oh, we're against each other. It's how can we both help each other succeed? Because once someone unlocks, especially there tends to be a bit of tension. And when I came in, I felt a fair amount of resistance in certain sales groups to just my, my existence or even with our wholesalers of quote change. Because just FYI, not in my company, but in the industry, a woman in my role was like surprising, which I was like, okay, guys, we got we to gotta take a lot of steps forward, but we'll get there later. But having a chance to like trust and build a relationship has been transformational because now we're walking in, we're doing this as a team. They know we're on the same page. We know we're all working towards the same goal and it just makes it so much easier. And it really kind of gets rid of pretty toxic environments that can happen that ultimately can pretty much ruin a company if, if you don't get ahead of it. What are some of the things that you do beyond just like day-to-day communications to build that relationship and trust? I'm constantly asking for their advice and opinions because ultimately they know more than I do in their position with their vendors, with their partners. So I make sure that I have given them a chance to have an opinion, to, to give a perspective. I make sure that I'm oversharing information. I limit to what extent they can like influence it and, and they understand that, but I'm constantly asking for their opinion. I'm constantly sharing and showing them things to get them excited because if someone's given an opinion or seen something or been a part of it, they feel more accountable to it. So they're like, okay, well, I've actually like invested some of my time in thinking she's heard me. She mentions it. I see it reflected. I feel respected. I feel like my voice is heard. I also therefore feel like I have a sense of ownership on this thing now too. So I'm going to put more time and attention towards it. So it's just, a, it's a, it's a long game to hopefully a success there, which is just build the relationship, but don't do it superficially do it like earnestly and honestly and and they'll respond to that and i've seen that kind of payback tenfold because sometimes when i'm in a pinch something's gone sideways and i'm like oh like crap like i gotta call them and tell them like we're not we're out of product we're out of stock because of you know lack of supplies due to covid they've got to go talk to their whole everyone's going to be pissed and and they'll be like literally like i got it it's handled don't worry trust me i'll get back to you I hadn't built that relationship, they'd be like, you're on your own. Like, this isn't our problem. I'm not having that conversation. Like, you're going to have to figure it out. So that's really like what helps benefit it in general. 
I think, I mean, we've kind of hit our time. Karen, do you have any closing questions for Emily or? I don't. I feel like we covered so much and yeah. I think you've connected what you've done on a bigger scale to help these small business owners really think ahead and be excited. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm, ex I, I'm excited at all the knowledge I just learned. <laughs> this. I have like four note pages, literally. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I appreciate y'all giving me the chance to have this conversation and, and I hope it's helpful and I'm always open if, if anyone who listens or they want to grab a, you know, I guess socially distanced coffee or preferably a beer from Lone Star. I'm always around, but no, I, I appreciate the time to, to chat and listen. And you guys asked some really great questions and I did dust off a few memories myself to be prepared. Okay. So I appreciate it. Good. Well, speaking on grabbing a virtual coffee, is there anything that you want to leave any listeners so they can chat with you or check you out or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, hopefully if we've done our job and, you know, there's certain distribution issues, the best way I, perhaps to, to engage in the brand stuff is I just ask, you know, walk down the beer aisle, check out Lone Star Beer, check out our new beers, like I mentioned, Lone Star Rio Hotty, which is a Mexican style lager, and then we have our, our new German style Kolsch called Das Beer Y'all. Um, which has a hint of peach, all again done by local artists in Texas. In Texas, it's, it's brewed in Austin, Texas. So check them out, enjoy them. And I would just say, hey, enjoy them, you know, responsibly and socially distanced from your, your friends and family and hopefully enjoy the kind of somewhat nice weather outside today before it gets hot again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if anyone wants to speak to you directly, do you have anywhere they can go to? Yeah. I mean, I'd say reach out to me on LinkedIn. But Holly's in advance. I'm a, I'm a slow responder just because work's been understandably pretty insane just due to COVID and some of the shifts that's done to our industry. But always feel free to reach out um, on LinkedIn and then happy to grab a, a beer or even just a virtual chat if needed. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this has yeah, been of course. really great. Appreciate everything you said. Thanks, Emily. If there's anything we can do for you, don't right. be shy. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. This is really great. This is a good way to almost end my Friday. So <laughs> loved it. Awesome. weekend. Ooh, My Social Circle is a CPG agency-driven podcast based out of Austin, Texas. We're excited to share more behind-the-scene insights, chats with industry leaders, and whatever else we learn along the way. Follow us on Instagram at Marketing, or check out our website, umaymarketing.com. Catch you back here soon.